Hello and welcome to episode number 185 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. And in this episode, we speak to Mustafa Minawi, Associate Professor of History at Cornell University and the author of Losing Istanbul, Arab Ottoman Imperialists and the End of Empire, published by Stanford University Press. Drawing on archival records, newspaper articles, travel logs, personal letters, diaries, photos and interviews, the book follows the rise and fall of a generation of Arab origin figures who flourished in the Ottoman capital at the end of the 19th century and the start of the 20th century. It shows that Arab Ottomans were a cornerstone of imperial rule in some of the empire's final years under Sultan Abdul Hamid II before the turbulence of ideological counterwaves, the Young Turk Revolution, the First World War and imperial collapse ruptured their world entirely. Before we get on with the episode, remember you can find our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 over at turkeybooktalk.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter and you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras including an exclusive discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and ebooks. If you're a current member, remember the discount codes have been updated for 2023, so do double check the email that I sent out with this episode. Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, in addition to all that, I send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Mustafa Minawi. The book describes how many of the advisors to Abdul Hamid II, a seminal figure who reigned from 1876 to 1909, came from Arabic-speaking parts of the Levant. Minawi writes that whether it was working on public health initiatives, advising the Sultan, or representing the empire, the influence of Arab Ottoman imperialists on the Hamidian-era Ottoman Empire is hard to overstate. So I started by asking him what it was about Abdul Hamid II's reign and the state of the empire at that time that provided the conditions for their influence to flourish. So the Hamidian period comes as a result or as a response to the Tanzimat period, not as a reaction to the Tanzimat period. I should make this very clear. So the Tanzimat is a multi-layered project. Uh, some of it is is top down. We're learning a lot more recently about the bottom up response to the Tanzimat that was happening during the reforms that led up to the Hamidian period that very much adopted a lot of the reforms, but kind of sped up or put a lot of 
teeth into the reforms that were happening uh, under the Tanzimat, including the centralization. The centralization or the bringing the provinces back into the orbit of Istanbul in a way that allowed the provinces or the people in the provinces that had a lot of power to function only through their connection to Istanbul became a lot more um, visible in the Hamidian period. That created an opening for some of these provincial elites to also claim Istanbul. So instead of having to maintain their connections with their own uh, local power structures in the Levant, a lot of this generation of people that grew up or went to school, I should say, in the 1870s and 1880s had the possibility, the option to claim the empire not from the provinces, but right from the center. And those are the people that I that I focus on in, in this book. They're the people that come from mostly big urban centers, though their families do control land outside of the urban centers, but they they were reared in the shadow of, of an era that was ending in which you could be a provincial notable without having to have a representatives in Istanbul. That era was quickly ending and Abdul Hamid's administration, whether intentionally or unintentionally, opened up pathways for these people in the Arab provinces, for the some for some of the kind of the younger generation of the 1870s and 80s to to kind of have an access to some of the central administrative roles in the palace and some of them of course in the sublime port where people could you know go through an education system that then would funnel them through a lot of family connections i should really emphasize that this is not just about merit a lot of their family connections allowed them access then to the inner circle of the palace as a working government, as well as the the sublime port. And I should emphasize, I focus on the Arab Ottomans or like Arab dash Ottomans, the hyphen is important, but it wasn't only Arab Ottomans. People do tend to talk about Abdul Hamid as having a lot of Arabs in his administration, which he did, but it is not some weird fetishization of Arabs or of Arabs as Muslims. I really need to make this very clear. There were a lot of people that were coming from different parts of, of the empire that were Muslim, for but were also uh, coming from other parts of the empire that also had roles in the administration. The fact that in Abdul Hamid's period, we see a lot more Arabs is more telling about the pre-Abdul Hamid periods than Abdul Hamid himself. That means there was barriers, if you will, to the idea, or there was no need for some of the provincial families in the Arab provinces to reach out. Now there is both a need and a way for these family members to be able to get to the center of the empire. And many of them took advantage of of that pathway that allowed them to claim the empire from the center rather than from the provinces. And what was the demographic profile, generally speaking, of these figures? Were they all Arab Muslim or were they Christians as well? No, there were definitely Christians there. Now, we usually tend to focus on non-Muslim figures in the center because we find it fascinating. We still think it's novel or something that has to be highlighted that there were also a lot of non-Muslim figures, whether they are Rum or Greek Orthodox or or in, in the case of people that are coming from the Levant, some of them were Maronite, some of them were was straight up Catholics <laughs> that were very much part of the inner circle of Abdul Hamid, at least in terms of contracts and and and. and 
government given out contracts. But the vast majority were still Muslim, Muslim Hanafi Sunni. I should be clear, but like they're Sunni from urban environments, and most of them were Hanafi, relating them to the Ottoman Empire in a in a very interesting, different way, like the kind of the elite kind of inner circle of Muslims that reclaimed the center. So yeah, the vast majority were still very much Muslim. There were a few non-Muslim that had very important roles, particularly representing the empire outside of the borders of the empire at conferences. And they played such central roles and are often highlighted because of their that centrality of interacting with, with European partners. But we tend to forget that the vast majority of the administration and the vast majority of the advisors were still, were mostly Muslim from major families from across the empire, including the Arabic-speaking majority provinces. The awkward long phrasing I should really highlight here is is important, and I sometimes slip. There's a bit of slippage when I'm talking about uh, the provinces by by calling them Arab provinces. You know, language is important, as you well know. And what we call certain things is how we imagine certain things. And if we start calling those parts of the empire as Arab provinces, first of all, we're assuming the Arabness as a thing which existed without having to to understand its complexities across several provinces. But more importantly, we're ignoring the huge population that later on would not identify as Arabs after Arab nationalism that would continue to live there that also spoke Arabic, but were not necessarily considered quote-unquote Arab. So I identify those provinces as the Arabic-speaking majority because in most cases, the population there spoke for the most part Arabic, though there were others that spoke different languages, at least on the local level. And of course, people learned Ottoman Turkish through schools and later had to learn Turkish. That's a different story. But they were not necessarily what we think of today as Arab in the nationalist sense or big rabbit ears in the ethnic makes sense. That's why I keep using the Arabic speaking majority provinces as a way of referring to what we think of today as the Arab world. Now, much of the book focuses on these two characters, Shafiq Azamzadeh and his nephew Sadiq Azamzadeh. And they were two of the many Arab Ottomans working in the Hamidian administration. They were born and grew up in Damascus before they moved to Istanbul. So introduce these two figures to us. Who were they and why were they useful for telling the story that you wanted to tell? They were fascinating figures, first of all. Uh, I mean, uh, particularly Sadiq Azimzadeh. I mean, I knew he was fascinating from the first book. I didn't know just to what extent as I started to reread some of the sources he left behind in a multitude of versions of them. I started to understand the complexity of uh, of the life he was living, a life in transition that in many ways was fractured at different moments as the empire itself starts to fracture. And that is reflected in his writing. So that made accessing his life and the life of the people that he interacted with delicious. It gave us a sense of what life must have been like for this elite few that lived there. So that's part of the reason I focus on Sadiq Shafi is also a very, very important figure that is a lot less known. People do not write about him. Turks don't claim him and, and, and Arabs claim him as an, a proto-Arab nationalist. Both interesting things. Sadiq is claimed, by the way, by historians anyway, as either a Turkish hero. They claim it as an ethnic Turk who happened to be living in the Arab provinces because of the travel logs he left behind and his travel literature. But Shafiq, his uncle, who happened to be a bit younger than him, is, to me, 
the quintessential palace man who then reinvents himself several times. But the biggest reinvention is within one year of that palace structure around Abdul Hamid collapsing. He reinvents himself as a, a representative in the new government post Young Turk revolution, representing Damascus and kind of transitioning from the ancien regime to this new regime in which he's now, instead of just being a representative of the empire and Abdul Hamid himself, he's now a representative of the Arab Ottomans of the empire through this new system. That transition is quick and amazingly successful for a very short period of time and also a representation of, of the pushback. He was like a kind of the head figure, kind of an example of what people like him had to face as they tried to claim the empire from their own perspective as Ottomans, but also as Ottomans that happened to come from Arabic-speaking majority provinces and the pushback they faced. So to sum up, they, they represented two examples. One who, who represented the empire internationally, so you can talk a lot about how the empire interacted with the rest of the world and the personal impact that had on people's notion of who they were as, as the empire started to crack. That is in Sadiq's figure. And the other one is more sedentary, and that is in Shafiq's figure, who was very much part of the palace or the inner circle of Abdul Hamid, and then went through the transition into the post-Hamidian period, into the Young Turk Revolution, and later into the second constitutional period, and the pushback and eventual push out of Arab Ottomans from this imagined new formulation of a multicultural empire that, that in many ways kind of rose during this period and died very quickly during that period as well. And they both, I believe, lived in the neighborhood of Teshvikie, which yes. has quite an outsized role in this story. It's a unique neighborhood and it has links, as you describe, to the Ottoman court and it has done since its establishment in the early 19th century. So tell yes. us about the origins of Teshvikie, you know, why it was established and what its role in this particular story of um, Arab Ottoman imperialists is. Uh, see, I use I use the concept of social space quite a bit in the book because it allows me to not be tied to one physical locality. But if there was one physical locality or place, I should say, that resembled kind of the core of this social space, it would be Tashfikiye. Because Tashfikiye is very much a place that was a neighborhood that was established on a vakuf that belonged to the dynasty much, much earlier. It was established initially as a place where they some of the Circassian refugees were actually settled and then they were moved out and a new neighborhood was established for the palace for people that worked for the palace that were very close to the Ottoman family and later on for some of the people that worked for the sublime port but by definition you would have to have that connection in one way or another to the palace for them to grant you the right to live in one of the konaks that was built purpose-built for those people that were connected to the center of the empire in this brand new and modern. The word modern comes up a lot when talk, when describing Tashfikiye because in reality, it, it came to life in the late 1870s and 1880s when Abdul Hamid moves to Yildiz Palace, not too far from Tashfikiye, where a lot of the people that uh, were moved from the old part of the city came to live in that neighborhood. But also a lot of the newcomers that are coming from the provinces that work for Abdul Hamid, like a lot of the Arab Ottomans, also were given contact 
monarchs on that street, including the two characters that I was talking about. Also, their distant cousin, Arab Izzet Pasha. He's a central moving character, if you will, in, in the book that comes in and out, as well as others, including other Arab Ottomans, but also others from that work for the palace from all over the empire that were mixed in with some of the dynasty's own offsprings that were also given palaces or that own palaces on this stretch that eventually gets absorbed into the larger Nishantashe area. This makes a social space that allows me to then talk about their day-to-day life and the material culture that what, that existed around them, also their physical proximity to one another, what this neighborhood represented during this period in terms of the division in class structure in Istanbul, how this was an elite neighborhood constructed as an elite neighborhood, and that meant a lot more things than just having a big house and a lot of money. That meant it included things such as having a lot of domestic workers, sharing a sense of how you perform this imperial class within that neighborhood in different households. Also, it includes some unpaid labor, slavery in a different term, that continued to be tolerated in those households, domestic slavery particularly, all within this very concentrated, really small 28 Konak at its largest a neighborhood that expanded towards the Bosphorus at one point and down towards Pera uh, later on. It allowed some of the sons of these big characters, Arabs and otherwise, to then have access to Galatasaray Lysis uh, just down into Pera. It's a short ride down to go and learn French and so on. And a lot of them end up in Harbi as well, which was just in their backyard. So it's a it's the perfect neighborhood for that Hamidian period. A lot of architectural historians, not a lot, I should say, a couple have talked about it as in, in terms of its architectural value and kind of a representation of a notion of modernness that was constructed in the 1880s and luxury that came in the 1880s. I talk about it as the quintessential Hamidian elite neighborhood that was deeply connected to the palace throughout this period. And in many ways, its eliteness gets transformed after the Republican period. But as you know, it still maintains a a level of luxury or a notion of luxury that permeates all the way until until today. So a lot of people that come from abroad want to stay in Nishantashe or in Tashvikiye because of what Tashvikiye offers. It went from being a place where the people that worked for the palace lived to a place where a lot of the intellectuals and later Republican intellectuals lived, but also people that imagined themselves as a large, as part of a wider global network of elite French-speaking, luxury product-consuming public until today. To give you an example, the Louis Vuitton that stands right now <laughs> in, in Nishantashe is built on the site of Shafiq's Konak. So if, if you like going to that neighborhood and staying in one of the cafes, people of that period created that sense of the eliteness of that neighborhood, even though the very physical structure of most of it, with the exception, of course, of the mosque and the Karakol, have mostly shifted or changed and re- were rebuilt completely. Now, there's a chapter in the book on what you call the dark side of working for the empire in the Hamidian era. And indeed, this was an era when there was a lot of paranoia that was setting in about imperial decline and atrocities were committed by the Ottoman authorities, particularly in the 1890s, of course, notoriously the massacres of Armenian Ottomans in southern and eastern Anatolia. So where do our characters, Sadiq and Shafiq, fit into this picture? How did they view what was going on on that front? 
They were true and very hardened imperialists that, like a lot of imperialists of that time, did not understand or they did not put a line between their personal benefit and the success of the empire or their personal survival and the survival of the empire. What was good for the empire was good for them. Also, what was good for them was assumed to be good for the empire. So a lot of what they did that we can perceive from that period, from our vantage point as corrupt or as embezzlement or as all sorts of things that we would not want our civil servants to do right now, at that time, I argue, was very much considered by these individuals as a service to the empire because what's good for them is good for the empire. However, that comes also with being very attached to the survival of the empire. So anything that that they perceived as threatening to the empire, the survival of the Hamidian regime at that period, to them, it's a direct existential threat to them, including what was happening in, in places with a lot of Armenians lived in Southeast Turkey. So a lot of what they, what the Hamidian regime was doing, they were in not only in full support, but the participants in it in different ways. Some of it is, is harder to find. It's harder to find the details that connect the lines of how they were directly involved in some of those things. What I could find is little bits and pieces, for instance, of Sadiq's involvement in the post massacres as a member that represented the, the palace who went to places near Urfa as restitution was being paid or they were trying to decide how restitution was being paid to both Muslim and non-Muslim residents of that area. So they were in many ways directly involved because they were part of the center. But a lot of what they talked about, about the Armenian population as a representation of the threat to the existence of the empire, they perceived as a threat to them, to their very own, their very own existence as imperialists. But whether they were directly involved as Asadik was or indirectly involved as Shafiq was, they were invested in what the Hamidian regime was doing and the rhetoric that was produced about, about populations, particularly the Armenian population, as a threat to the survival of the empire. And thus, there is no nuance. If you're a threat to the empire, if you're a threat to Abdul Hamid, you're a threat to us and the survival of this project. And thus, there is no understanding of what was going on beyond the Armenian Ottoman population as a threat to the survival of the empire and thus to be condemned wholly uh, using the same rhetoric or the propaganda that the palace was using, both, by the way, locally. And I talk about a little bit about there internationally. There was like a whole line of, of kind of justification of what the Ottoman government was doing, the central Ottoman government was doing in those provinces through these these terms that they participated in. So there's like a, an article that I bring up in which Azimzadeh Asadik himself is pictured uh, on the front page of a French, very popular French weekly in which that rhetoric is repeated about the threat that the Armenian population posed to the to the stability of the region through its threat to the empire itself and thus to those members of the empire or those that uh, identified with the empire. Arab Ottomans were very much, Arab Ottoman imperialists, I should say, were very much part of the core that felt threatened by the Armenians as well. And there's a chapter also on the post-1878 Ottoman defeat against the Russian Empire and the situation after that defeat. And indeed, this whole era is seen by many today in Turkey as one where many imperial lands were lost. And that exacerbated this feeling of paranoia about decline. And you write at one point that you want to, quote, invite the reader to imagine the world through the eyes of a young up-and-coming Ottoman patriot. Years when the differential in power and prestige between the Ottomans and the European powers 
became bitterly clear. So talk about how that fits into the story of the generation that you describe in the book, and particularly these fascinating exchanges that you describe between Sadiq and various European contemporaries, particularly his interactions with Germans and Russian counterparts. Absolutely. Part of part of the question that you asked me earlier on, why Sadiq and Shafiq, is that they just happen to be at the center of so many of the global events, right? They had a front row view of what was taking place. In many cases, they were constructing some of the things that we understand today as, as the intricacies of, of Ottoman-European interaction during that period. Sadiq particularly was right there. He was, what is that American movie in which that character, that fictional character keeps popping up? in everything that is important. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? That movie from the guy that keeps running across this, the United States. Oh, um, Forrest Gump. So he is the Forrest Gump. Honestly, that <laughs> Sadiq Azizad <laughs> is in many ways... I him to come up in this conversation, to be honest. A, a friend of mine and a, an Ottoman scholar himself, Ken Shul, when he read uh, the manuscript, uh, he's like, Jesus, he's like the Forrest Gump of, of the Ottoman Empire. And that's, that is really the, the best way to describe him because he is perfect for us to examine what was going on with these major events, the defeat against the Russians and then having to interact with the Russians so intimately as a defeated empire. He was right there kind of representing the empire as a, in this kind of victory tour that the Russian imperial family was was ha- was holding in the Levant, particularly in Palestine, but also in his hometown in Damascus. He was there. He was accompanying him and he, had, and he wrote about this interaction. He also accompanied, of course, uh, Wilhelm II Second, as he was also touring the empire way in the 1890s, first in Istanbul and then again in his hometown in Damascus and in, into Palestine. So he wrote extensively about this from the perspective of an, an Ottoman. Remember, he went through the military education. He was up and coming during that period. And he was kind of living the post-defeat, the post-shock of the uh, the defeat and then the, uh, the Berlin Conference of the 1870s and 1880s and then 1885. Again, the other the other shock uh, that happened with the other Berlin conference. He was right at the center of it, writing about it from a perspective of an Ottoman loyalist, a hardcore imperial loyalist who believed in the imperial project, whether it is within the empire and beyond it. So he interacted with those characters on two levels as former enemies in one case when it comes to Russian, uh, to the Russian representatives, but also as new partners when it comes to the German, to the German as new uh, military partners, and he gets involved in that as well, but also as a human being who himself identified as an imperialist of a certain class that interacted with them on a personal level in a completely different way as equals, not just as equals, as people that belong to the same social space, if you will. I found that fascinating, that kind of juxtaposition between the political and the post-defeat and uh, as him representing the empire that has been defeated and is trying to reclaim its place in the world, but also on the other level, on the personal level, in which they all, you know, played tennis together and and dated and and went gambling in in Khan together and so on. So he was the perfect person to observe to observe this through his eyes, particularly because he wrote a lot, and also because he had the inside view that allowed us to not think of these characters as people that were either quote imitating the West or were obsessed 
with the West, but were very much part of the construction of this elite, a la imperial, if you will, uh, uh, social space that trans that went from Paris all the way to Istanbul and beyond that he participated in and he was part of. And he did that by observing and criticizing, admiring and criticizing some of the things that he saw with his interaction with other European imperialists, but also living uh, and traveling in Berlin and Paris. And also, probably more importantly, as he as he reflected on his time in Berlin and Paris and the Crimea and Bulgaria and other places when he was in Africa, reflecting on what he was seeing in front of him. This issue of how Ottoman elites also largely belonged to what you call a trans-imperial global elite yes. uh, that shared many of this, the same cultural and social rules of behavior and with mental maps that resembled each other, essentially, and particularly yeah. Sadiq in this case. You know, I thought it was so fascinating in the book. And some of those themes come to the fore, as you say there, in, in the two chapters in the book on Sadiq's travels for the empire among the Bedouins in the Hijaz, and then also, of course, to the Sahara, Libya, Abyssinia, and the Horn of Africa. And all these trips afforded this rich opportunity for him to reflect on his complicated identity, complicated metropolitan identity as both an Arab born in Damascus, but also a member of this imperial elite in Istanbul. And he really contrasted this metropolitan identity, this trans-imperial elite identity with the locals that he came across in these various locations. And he reflected on all that in these memoirs that he wrote of the trips that he took. Could you just talk about that in a bit more detail, you know, what they tell us about how Sadiq saw himself and saw his place in the Ottoman hierarchy and obviously, of course, the Ottoman Empire's position in these lands that he was traveling to? Yes. So two core chapters deal with with Sadiq traveling first in, in Libya and later on again in Libya, what will become Libya, but also in the Eastern Sahara and later on again in the Eastern Sahara and Ethiopia or the Ethiopian Empire, if you will, or Abyssinia. And those two core chapters depend heavily on, on kind of a, a reading against the grain, to use that expression, of not just one version of those travelogues, but in some cases up to five different versions of the same travelogue as it went from manuscript form in his own handwriting and then for it to be prepared to be either given to the Sultan and what that version looked like, then what would go through the censors in Istanbul and gets published in Ottoman Turkish, but gets translated into Arabic during that period in Egypt and what that what what's the language they're using. And of course, the final version usually is what ends up being transliterated or translated, if you will, into modern Turkish, the different versions of the same travelogue gives me a very good sense of the of the importance of certain descriptions and the language that he was using as he was describing others in a way that reflects on what he was going through during that period as a self-identified Ottoman Istanbulu who belonged to an, to an imperial class and that identified with a wider trans-imperial class. That, of course, is not stable and it changes over time. It changes from his earlier travelogues in the 1880s and then later on in the 1890s or uh, sorry, the early 20th century in, the, in 1903 and 1904 as his own notion of how he belonged to the empire and more importantly, his belonging to a wider imperial class 
has shifted and how he what terminology he used to either make himself more similar to one group and less similar to the other and how he distinguishes himself from the quote unquote the Bedouins or the locals the natives if, is probably the better way to describe it if we're thinking in terms of that genre of, of colonial period travelogues through quote unquote exotic lands right that he in many ways adopts that kind of language and then later on how that language becomes racialized as we come into a world in which racial distinction or racial racialization i should say starts to creep in to the center of the empire impacting him as an arab ottoman i should say this while he's reflecting on that through his own form of creating racial difference between him as a quote white man which comes in later on as a description, as a, what I call like his way of accessing what is becoming distinctly notion of, of European supremacy without being European in relation to what he described as the African local black other. That to me was fascinating, first of all, uh, because we rarely talk about how notions of race and particularly anti-blackness came to, to shape not only the, the imperial project, including the Ottoman imperial project, outside of the center, but also how that came home to the metropole as well, in a way that influenced later on how non quote unquote Turk Ottomans were both perceived and later excluded from the imagination of what the modern empire would look like and later, of course, the Turkish Republic. Let's let's bring let's bring things up to the end of the book actually now, before we conclude. The story comes to an abrupt but symbolic end with the execution of Shafiq mm -hmm. under the Young Turk regime, along mm -hmm. with many other Arab Ottomans suspected yeah. of treason and separatism at the time. So this was after 1908, after the overthrow of, of Abdul Hamid, and the new regime came in. And this really did change the facts on the ground, essentially. It changed the reality that these officials were living in. So could you just talk about that issue? You know, what were the circumstances around Shafiq's death and what does it signify for us in the story that you're telling? So Shafiq is a very complex character, like most human beings. I suppose you can read into his life either a man who was extremely selfish that tried very much to nurture the relationship, uh, the wealth of himself, more importantly, as well as his connections in, in other parts of the province. Or you can think of him as the quintessential, perfectly well-suited palace man and later politician representing Arab provinces. I say this because he his character is vilified and some circles and is held up as as the noble proto-Arab nationalists in other circles. What I tried to do in the book is to show the complexity of what it meant to be an imperialist during that period that worked and had access to, to power through being connected to both the provinces and the center. And that is perfectly represented in how he operated. What happens is that after the Young Turk Revolution, some people, of course, there's the whole, you know, the military tribunals, a lot of people are demoted, a lot of people are executed, and not, uh, but most of them are demoted, uh, pushed away, and then have to be reintegrated into the new government because they held a lot of the skills and the power structures. In many ways, it reminds me of what happens after the debathification of, of Iraq after the American invasion, and then later having to reincorporate a lot of the people 
people that were part of the government uh, in a different way now as non-Ba'athists, but as members of a new government. It happens very much under after the, uh, after the Young Turk Revolution. A lot of the people that were considered too close to the center, also the people that ran everything, were first kicked out, pushed out, demoted, in some cases tried, some cases imprisoned, and in some cases executed. A lot of them are brought in under different guises in, within a few months because the government would not work without them. The Azamzadis were very much part of that uh, genre, particularly Sadiq, who doesn't survive too long after that. I think his very power, the height of his power was him as a representative in Bulgaria, and then in, within a few months getting completely demoted, losing the even the Pashalik, and then eventually being assigned to, to Jeddah, where he catches a disease and, and dies soon after in 1910. So he doesn't get to experience then the real struggles of Arab Ottoman parliamentarians that have to face a new kind of discrimination that is very explicit, that kind of uh, makes a distinction, not just between Muslim and non-Muslim, as we kind of usually tend to talk about the empire, but as people of different unsurs. And in some people translate unsur as element, which is great because that is a way of kind of, of avoiding the issue that element in reality was an ethnic or, or an, an, an ethno-racial category. And Arabs fit into the, uh, one of those ethno-racial categories that within a couple of years of the Young, Young Turk Revolution had to face a lot of discrimination against. Shafiq survives into that period very much at the forefront of this kind of representation of someone who wanted to be part of a new uh, imperial order, but also claiming it on his own terms as an Arab Ottoman and refused to kind of give in into the some of the more hardcore CUP demands that wanted people to operate under Turkification without Turkish nationalism, if you will, the cultural wars that were taking place, he was at the forefront of these. And he ends up paying for it very dearly, first personally on the floor of the parliament, where his very character is attacked as a representative of this Arab elite that was associated. That That is where the construction of the Arab elites of that period kind of gets tied with the, the corruption of the Hamidian period. And later we see this imagination of like the Ottoman Empire being a corrupt empire because of the racist idea that because it incorporated allowed elements from the east to take hold under the Hamidian administration in in the center we see that rhetoric a lot unfortunately in nationalist historiographies as you know he was at the forefront of that he faced a lot of the brunt of those attacks but later on he is accused by Jamal Pasha him uh, Jamal Pasha that is considered that is in the Arab provinces is known as the bloodletter or the safa or the the butcher because of this very short period, the very intense period in which a lot of these people that were at the forefront of being representatives of the Arab majority provinces in the parliament, in the Ottoman Empire, are accused of treason or of separatism and then summarily executed, including Shafiq in this case. To me, him going from being the, the hardcore imperialist, quintessential Hamidian palace man to becoming a representative in the parliament that represented Arab-speaking majority province, uh, particularly here, Damascus, really, in the parliament. And then him being used as an example of the corruption of Arabs or how Arabs needed to reinvent themselves in a way that would fit into uh, a new form of an uh, of a a more Turkified version of what an Ottoman is supposed to be. And then him being executed over it, for me, makes him the perfect example through which to tell this story, flawed though he may
may have been. So I don't want to make a hero out of him in by any stretch of the imagination. I think if you read the book, you will you will see that I do not in any way kind of glorify the dude. But I think life refracted through his career, life refracted through the day-to-day existence of him and later on his family who get interned along with many other Arab Ottoman imperialist families during World War One is a perfect representation of a very violent, very tragic, very traumatic, quick transition from the imperial period into the post-imperial period that we really don't take a talk about for the Arab provinces. So yes, it's an abrupt end when he gets hanged. But as you know, there the, the ramifications for his family, for a lot of the Azimzades that get interned, uh, interned in different parts of Anatolia, along with other elite families, and later them having to scramble into reinventing themselves as either members of a new Republican Turkish society where they change their name and and kind of have to reintegrate and also reimagine their history or pretending that the Ottoman life, their Ottoman life did not exist and having to reinvent themselves as proto-Arab nationalists or Syrian nationalists or whatever have you within a period of less than a decade is insane to me. When you look at it through the lens of lived life, these are real people that lived one reality and then have to reinvent themselves and live yet another reality that seems completely disconnected from the other. And then having to really kind of pretend that the past did not happen, which in many cases still exists in, actually in most cases, it still happens in countries like Lebanon and and Palestine and Syria and Jordan, where the Ottoman period is just not talked about, or it's talked about as, as either like a Turkish occupation, which is absolutely absurd when you think about who was ruling during that period, which members of society were actually in charge. But more importantly, not wanting to talk about 400 years of this formative period that people lived through not that long ago, (laughs) that people had to then kind of divorce themselves from. And then there was a silence about, a silence that continues till today about this transition, this connection to a lost empire, but also to a, a, a connection to a lost center of empire, which is what the book kind of romantically talks about, the connection to to an imperial center that, that the Arabs or the Arabs of the people that live in, in Arab countries right now cannot access as part of their own history, their connection to Istanbul. So that what ends up happening is that when we see Arabs now uh, living in Istanbul or Arabic speaking people living in Istanbul now that came in droves, of course, after the Syrian uh, revolution. And later on, there's, uh, of course, there's tons of uh, political exiles or other members of, of the, from Egypt, from Gaza, from Lebanon now because of the economic situation that uh, that populate many of the neighborhoods of Istanbul that are changing in many ways the character of, of the city, uh, their connection, their recent to me as a historian 100 years ago is very recent. Their very recent connection to not only that center, that city, the empire as a whole, their shared history with the people that they are now living with is erased. So they're thought of completely as just complete strangers that, and in many cases, unfortunately, with the with the election coming up, are they're thought of through some right-wing political parties as aliens to be excluded or aliens to be discriminated against or aliens to be used as a trope through which to kind of racialize the other as a way of reifying an imagined, purified notion of a Turkish Republic. 
to me, it's tragic. It really is. It's a tragedy that was lived once. And I feel like it's a tragedy that we're living again because of this lost uh, or, or really this forced amnesia, if you will, of this deep connection of a shared history between people of the Levant and people of what is today Turkey, particularly Istanbul. That was Mustafa Minawi. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 185. Don't forget, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support us by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it or writing a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners. So do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel for signed up members who want more, and they've also started publishing high quality, original, on the ground reporting. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.